Abraham is often called the father of faith. Over 2,000 years ago, God chose him out of idolatry to start a godly line that would lead to the nation of Israel and ultimately through all of that to the Messiah. And it all started because Abraham believed God and was made right with God because of his faith, not because of his good works and deeds. Genesis 15.6, it says of Abraham, he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham is included among other great Old Testament heroes of the faith. In the Hall of Faith, sometimes it's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. and Galatians chapter 3, it refers to him as, quote, the man of faith. So since Abraham was a man of towering faith, that means that he never doubted, right? Right? Not hardly. Abraham doubted when God told him he would have a child at an advanced age, even laughed out loud. He also doubted God's protection when he twice lied about his wife Sarah's identity. Remember that? A couple times in Genesis there? If he trusted fully God's promise to give him an heir, why did he lie and allow her to be taken away from him and given to a king? So what is he? Is he a man of great faith or a man who had doubts? Well, he was both. His life was characterized by faith, but it was a faith that grew over time so that one could say that he was a man of faith, even though he had doubts too. In fact, God can use our doubts to grow our faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 to 21 says of Abraham, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Notice how it says there that he grew strong in his faith. It wasn't just sort of this static reality that stayed the same, but he grew in his faith. Friends, that's the goal for all of us, that the trajectory of our lives would be one of growing faith, not growing doubt. Amen? The aim isn't necessarily to be doubt-free. I think that's impossible. But God can use your doubts to strengthen your faith. The great Bible commentator William Barclay said, If a man fights his way through his doubts to the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord, he has attained to a certainty that the man who unthinkingly accepts things can never reach. You see his point? It can be used to strengthen your faith. Well, last week, friends, we began our series called Jesus is Greater, Finding Hope in Life's Struggles. And in this series, we want to cover topics like doubt, anger, depression, guilt, forgiveness, grief, and more areas that we all struggle with in various ways. We're going to cover the topics one by one, trying to really understand what does the Bible say about them and how can we have guidance to grow in these ways. And so, um, last week we began with doubt. And when I say doubt, I, I mean our just our 
confidence, our belief in the certainty of the truthfulness of Christianity and how it applies to our life. That's what we struggle with having that kind of certainty. And we began with doubt because it can directly affect the rest of the other topics. You see, if you're paralyzed with doubt, it's going to be a lot more difficult for you to really trust and anchor on to God's promises dealing with anger or depression and so on if you're doubting the very truthfulness of His Word, right? Kind of like the first domino in a chain reaction. We also know that doubt can debilitate even just you by yourself. It can debilitate your faith, whether you're a new Christian or a mature one. And perhaps you might be sitting here today struggling with doubt. Maybe it's something you'll struggle with in the future. But what we're hoping to communicate in this series is that there is hope in the midst of doubt. And I hope today will be a blessing as we try to deal with that. So just to recap, this is part two. Last week, we looked at two questions. What is doubt? What is doubt? And I went through this because I think sometimes Christians misunderstand what doubt is. When we hear the word doubt, we intuitively kind of think that doubt, um, that, that the opposite of doubt is faith. And I don't think that's accurate. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. You believe, if you disbelieve something, you reject it. Where doubt, on the other hand, is faith mixed with unbelief. You believe something, but you lack certainty. It's an imperfect faith, but you do believe. In other words, it's kind of hard to doubt something in which you already believe. Does that make sense? So doubt's kind of this middle ground. And we saw last week that not just Abraham, but many heroes of the Bible had their seasons and moments of doubts. Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Job, Gideon, David, Elijah. We looked at the New Testament, and Jesus often rebuked the disciples and said, Oh, you of little what? Faith. So doubt is common. The second question that we looked at was, Why do we doubt? And we looked at this kind of in depth just to see, because I want to know what's going on. What's at the root of doubt? We saw there are three things that are often at the root. Intellectual concerns, trials, and spiritual warfare. And so if you weren't, you might want to, if you weren't here last, you might want to listen online to catch up on that a little bit. But today we're going to just focus on one theme. We see that doubt is common, but we also see in Scripture that God doesn't want us to live in doubt. Does that make sense? He, 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 he realizes it's common, but he doesn't condone it. And so we need to grow in how to deal with our doubts. And to help us, we're going to look at what is, in my opinion, to me, the greatest example of doubt in Scripture. The person involved is very surprising. John the Baptist. I was going to mention him last week, but I thought, you know what, let's cover it this week because his example is so helpful for us and how to deal with doubt. So from this passage, I want us to learn and hopefully apply three principles to deal with doubt. So I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, page 863, using one of the Bibles in front of you. Luke chapter 7. While you guys are turning there, just a, just a quick word about John the Baptist. He was, the, of course, the forerunner to the Messiah. He, called the, he came before Jesus. He called the nation to repent. 
to prepare them for the Messiah. And when Jesus arrived, John took a secondary role. He faded off the scene. And then he was arrested by Herod Antipas, the ruler in that region, because John confronted him for his adulterous and incestuous marriage that he was now involved with. So as you come to Luke chapter 7, John had been in prison for about a year or so. It's hard to know exactly, but he had been in prison for a long time. All right, so that's the context. So pick up with me in verse 18. We'll read from there. So it says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling the, the things were all the miracles and so on that Jesus was doing, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, speaking of Jesus, healed many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's court. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet, this is he, Jesus is speaking about John, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, he who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That last verse, by the way, is not a slight against John. Okay, when it says that he who John is, le- is worse than the least in the kingdom of heaven, he's not a slighting John. He's just saying now that the kingdom of God is here, it's greater and surpasses anything that was in the old covenant. So that if you're just a new believer, in one sense, you are greater than John because you're experiencing all these incredible blessings now in the new covenant. Okay, but he's, he's not diminishing John. He's actually saying he's a great prophet. But anyway. Just to get the point here, so John sends these messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you really the Messiah? When you read this, you should almost fall out of your seat. You don't have to, but it really is like that kind of a reaction. People probably, when they first heard this, almost did. John is the last person you would have suspected as doubting. What does Jesus say about him? He was a prophet, a great prophet. And and he was a man totally sold out to God. He wasn't a reed that sways around. This man was rock hard tough and rock hard solid in his beliefs. And he had a lot of things that he could have pointed to. His mother, Mary, or his mother, Elizabeth, was friends and a relative of Mary, 
knew all about Jesus' unique conception, so surely that was passed on to John about Jesus having this unique conception. John himself baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus, heard the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son. That's a lot, isn't it? Even after Jesus began His ministry, it was another six months before John was imprisoned. And so he was around and heard about or maybe even saw Jesus preach and do these miracles. Despite all of that, John doubted. The very man whom Jesus appointed to be His herald was now turning around and doubting Him. Yeah. So I said it's probably the greatest example of doubt. Just a quick by the way, sometimes we think if we had only lived in Jesus' day, we wouldn't have any doubts. It's funny how John the Baptist and the apostles were there. They had doubts. I think it might reduce them, but it doesn't eliminate them. So why did John doubt? Well, again, looking at the causes of why we doubt, I believe John had intellectual concerns. What I mean by that is that it was a deeply ingrained belief among the Jews of the time, all of them, I mean, it was very widespread, that the Messiah would come and be a conquering liberator who would remove the oppressors who were the Romans at the time, right? Actually, the Old Testament did not prophesy that. You remember from Daniel, we saw that it spoke there in the Old Testament, the Messiah would be cut off. And in the future, he would come in great power and victory and conquest, but not his first coming. But it was so deeply ingrained in their hearts and minds that that is what the Messiah must be like. They had a false expectation, and it was so strong that John apparently went along with all the rest that what's going on here? This guy does some miracles, but the Romans are still hanging around, right? And I truly believe a lot of people struggle with doubt because you have a false expectation of who God is and what He does. For example, why he allows trials and sufferings and things. People go through this and say, God would never do that. He would never allow me to go through that. That's not what the Bible says. That's a false expectation. You see what I'm saying? But that leads to the second reason that I think John was doubting. He was enduring trials, which again is a second cause of doubt. John went from this prophetic ministry. I mean, he was the talk of the nation. One guy I was listening to said he was the rock star in the land. Everybody wanted to go hear John. He went from being the voice that people flooded to to languishing in a prison for a year, likely facing death. And to top it off, Jesus was a relative of John, probably a cousin, and yet he didn't free him. Do you think he might have thought, why is Herod doing his thing and I'm stuck here in jail. 
and I face death. I think trials affected John, and it stirred within John not just a passing moment of doubt, but a deep sense of doubt, so much so that he was willing to send two of his disciples all the way to Jesus a long distance to ask him if he was the Messiah. You see how that affects you? So let's see how do we deal with doubt. How do we deal with doubt? And I think this story provides some great principles. The first that we get from this whole situation is to express your doubts to God. Express your doubts to God. The one thing you don't want to do is bottle them all up. Doubt doesn't just go away. Sometimes people call it a splinter in your mind. And if you know anything about a splinter, they don't just typically fall out, do they? You have to take them out or they fester. And I think that we should be expressing our doubts when we have them. And here's a newsflash for you. God can handle your doubts. It's actually not a surprise to Him. It's not a secret. He knows everything that you think anyway. It's not a newsflash. So express your doubts, not in a complaining, bitter way, but seeking clarity. John does so. And others in the Bible too do the same. Look at Job. Look at some of the Psalms. They express their doubts. And they're not just generic doubts, but they're very specific. John didn't kind of cover it up and say, hey guys, I want you to go to Jesus and just say, hey Jesus, if you wouldn't mind struggling a little bit here in this prison, could use a little prayer. But I'm good other than that. No, he says, are you the Messiah? He gets right to it. John was direct. I think sometimes we hesitate to express our doubts because we think God's going to condemn us. As I said, God doesn't condone our doubts, but he doesn't condemn us either. In fact, Jesus, not only does he not condemn John, he actually goes on to commend him as this great prophet. He doesn't accept the doubt, but he works with us in our doubt to grow us in our faith. A passage that has circulated in my mind through these past couple of weeks talking about doubt. In Psalm 103, verse 13 to 14, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows that we are weak. And he has compassion. But he wants us to be honest and to be able to express those things and to ask God for assurance. And you know what He will do, friend? He will give you assurance. I love Romans 8.16. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Even when you're in a season of doubt, the Holy Spirit can testify to your spirit that yes, you're a child of God. Yes, you know Him. And He will guide you through this season. Amen? So the first principle is to express your doubts. The second principle is to understand the evidence for faith. To understand the evidence for faith. You know, God's made us that way. 
We, we like to have reasons for why we believe what we believe, right? And John was so unsh- was unsure, and so Jesus, he doesn't just say, go believe it. That's tough. No, he gives them specific reasons. In particular, he points out how the Old Testament made predictions of the Messiah, about how he would heal people and do miracles and preach the good news. And Jesus says, look, go look, I'm doing all this stuff. And apparently it satisfied his doubt, because we hear no more from John. So Jesus doesn't shut down his sincere question. He doesn't just say, don't ask questions, just believe. He gives reasons to believe. He does the same thing with good old Thomas. Right? Thomas said he wouldn't believe unless he saw the nail marks. Well, what do you know? The next week Jesus comes back and says, here, do you want to see him yourself? So if you're struggling with doubt, be encouraged that God can provide compelling reasons to believe in Christianity. And it's vital to know why you believe because, friends, you will face difficult questions. You will endure trials. And if the basis of your faith is all feelings, look out. Because your feelings ebb and flow. And so when you hit that low point, boom, you will get rocked with doubt if that's what all you're trusting in. Now, I'm not saying that every Christian needs to be an expert, but I do think every Christian should have some reasons for their faith. Let me share what helps me in times of doubt. Here are three things, three evidences for why I believe Christianity. And I go back to these things in my mind often. The first evidence is personal transformation. God changed me. He became a living reality. I know God exists, and I know Him personally. And it wasn't something I just decided to make up one day. Turn over a new leaf. New Year's resolution. No, God became real to me. And people in our church share the same testimony. How do you explain this kind of transformation without something supernatural? Especially when you go outside. uh, uh, I mean, just there's amazing testimonies in here but even going further out into the body of Christ and just seeing and hearing about incredible personal transformations. This past week I was reading a great story about from John Ortberg's book called No Doubt, K-N-O-W, Doubt. He tells of a man named Bill Moore who got drunk one night and killed a man for $5,000 and was given the death penalty. One day, he'd been in there for years, a couple Christian men come in and share the gospel with him. And he became a Christian. The change was remarkable. The hatred and the darkness was gone. And he started affecting others. He, he, he soon became known as the peacemaker because he started leading other inmates to Christ and his cell block became the safest cell block in the prison. And get this. Churches heard about his counseling ministry <laughs> and started sending people to him. Can you imagine? Somebody calls up the church here. Hey, do you know a good counselor around? Yeah, there's a guy over here at the prison. He's actually a death row inmate. You've got to go talk to this guy. But that's the transformation that Jesus brings. 
He won. He reached out to the family that he had murdered his, that relative, won their forgiveness, and even started a correspondence with them. Eventually, the authorities not only canceled his death sentence, but paroled him. And now he's a minister uh, at a, in a very poor area in a congregation. Lee Strobel, the writer, asked him, what changed him? Was it your medication? Was it a rehab program, etc.? He said, quote, it wasn't any of that stuff. It was Jesus Christ. So personal transformation. The second evidence is Christianity makes sense of the world. Every person has to wrestle with the big questions of life. Is God real? What is he like? What's wrong with us? What's the solution? Is there hope after life? And the answers to these questions make up what people call your worldview. And everybody has a worldview, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or whatever. You have a view of these ultimate issues of life. And I think Christianity provides answers that are emotionally and intellectually compelling. And I think no other belief system comes close. For example, Scripture teaches that the universe was made out of nothing. But you know what? It was not until the last century that the, sci- the scientists discovered the Bible was right all along. Scripture teaches that humans are made of body and spirit. There's something immaterial about us. And this has constantly been fought against by atheists who are trying to show that all we are is just a collection of atoms. But these attempts fail to explain human consciousness. And it just befuddles people over and over that there's something about us that is immaterial. A soul, a spirit. Scripture teaches that humans have a predisposition towards sin. In other words, we come out of the womb with a bent towards sin. Other belief systems say, no, we're just blank slates. Really? Well, I never had to teach my children how to disobey me, or how to lie, or how to steal, or how to cheat, or how to beat each other up. And your children are all the same. But Islam will come along and say, no, we don't have a sinful nature from birth. But this Christianity says, no, we do. What explains reality better? Scripture teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. If you put on your historian cap and go look at the evidence and say, what is the best possible explanation of things that are undisputed like the empty tomb and the transformation of these disciples who are willing to die for their belief? The best explanation is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. There's more, but hopefully you see the point that Christianity makes sense of the world. We believe it because it's true, not just because it makes you feel good. And the third line of evidence that I would point to is Scripture works. Whatever Scripture addresses, whatever topic, when the Christian believes and applies its teaching, it brings blessing. Scripture works when it comes to your relationships, when your marriage, your parenting, your finances, and so on. This is just this thing I've seen through my years of ministry, whenever people take God's Word and they live it and apply it, it brings blessing. And whenever they do the opposite, trouble follows. I mean, it is clockwork. The proof is in the pudding. It's not saying that your life is perfect or whatever, but there's always just a a blessing that when you start listening to God's Word and doing it. 
You see this on a national level. As societies prosper, we were talking about this on the drive-in to church. We're talking about how did people really, were they ever cannibals and things like that? I said, oh yeah, you go trace back our European descendants long enough. They were eating people. What changed them? Christianity came in. Changes societies. I know that's rough. You may not find that on Ancestry.com, but if you look far enough, that's where it's there. It's not pretty, but it's there. But here's the thing. Considering how complex life is, how diverse different cultures are, how could there be a book, right, that could know the human heart so well unless it originated from the Creator? So, friends, Scripture, God gives compelling evidence to believe. We don't have a blind faith, but a reasonable faith. So our first two principles, express your doubts and understand the evidence for faith. Finally, the third principle to deal with doubt is work through your doubts with others. If you are trying to apply these other two principles and you're still really struggling, it's vital you speak with others. I think dealing with doubt should be a church-wide endeavor. And there needs to be a lot of humility all around. On one hand, those who struggle with doubt should acknowledge their struggles. Don't let pride get in the way. Think about it. You think that was kind of hard for John to say, hey guys, I want you to go to Jesus and ask him if he's really the Messiah. Think that was a little bit humbling? But he did it. That's right. We'll get to that in a second, Ernie. So if you doubt, seek out a strong Christian. Not just somebody you feel comfortable with. If you're in that season of doubt, seek out someone who's a strong Christian. If you're hanging on the edge of a cliff by your fingernails, I don't think you want to ask the guy next to you, right? Get me out of this. You want to talk to someone on firm ground and do that. Find someone and talk to them. But on the other hand, as the church, we are to help those who are struggling with doubt. Jude 22, it says, Have mercy on those who doubt. We should have sympathy with those who are going through doubt. Are you sympathetic if somebody approached you after church and said, I'm really struggling right now. God is very distant to me. How would you, how would you feel about that person? Would you kind of look down on them or shoo them away? Or would your heart expand and say, I want to help you through this? People have sincere questions. We need to come alongside and help them. And this principle is important for all ages, but particularly so for young people who are working through their beliefs to claim for their own. We need to encourage them to talk with others. And unfortunately, church or research has shown that the church as a whole isn't doing a great job here. David Kinneman wrote a book called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. One of the reasons young people leave the church is a failure to address their doubts. One-fourth have serious doubts they want to discuss, yet one-third say the church is not a safe place to express them. That's sad. He writes, I believe unexpressed doubt is one of the most powerful destroyers of faith. In another study, researcher Kara Powell followed 500 youth group graduates three years into college. She writes, quote, When young people ask tough questions about God at church, often during elementary or middle school, they were told by well-meaning church leaders and teachers 
We don't ask those sort of questions about God. This is sad because we're losing people. We're losing people. People who are Christians and maybe get kind of neutralized in their faith, or people who maybe aren't Christians but are searching and they're wondering, and we shut them down. In the, uh, there's a highly acclaimed biography about the founder of Apple, Steve Jobs. Walter Isaacson was the writer, and he relates this incident in Jobs' life. Apparently Jobs was not a Christian, but he grew up attending a Lutheran church. One day as a 13-year-old, Jobs asked the pastor about a Life magazine article about starving children. And specifically, Jobs wanted to know what God was going to do about it. And the pastor did not really answer his question. After that incident, Jobs walked away from Christianity. Now, I'm not excusing Jobs for his actions. He could have searched harder because there are answers for his question. But what would have happened if that pastor had worked with him, given him some reasons to believe? Can you imagine how the world could be a different place even today if Steve Jobs had become a Christian? There are a lot of people like that. May we be found faithful to help people work through their doubts. And personally, I just want to let everybody know here at our church, my door is always open if you have questions or if you are struggling for prayer, for just resources. Please don't hesitate. In closing, I just want to say that there's no easy solution to a doubt-free life. I don't want to have that impression. But these principles can really help you struggle with doubt. And I think grow in your faith. William Lane Craig is one of the Christianity's best apologists. He's debated many leading atheists and skeptics, and he usually beats them. He offers this counsel. He says, I think the key to victorious Christian living is not to have all your questions answered, which is probably impossible in a finite lifetime, but to learn to live successfully with unanswered questions. Friends, we're never going to know it all. We are not God, right? And we're never going to have all our hurts healed perfectly in this lifetime. At some point, we need to step back and recognize and say, God is God or we're not. He is the creator, and we are the created. We're not going to have all the answers, but we've been given many answers. Amen? And God has given us multiple reasons to believe. and We can have confidence and trust in what he has given us. We can trust and grow through our doubts to be like Abraham, who had that trajectory of faith that was always growing. Even when doubts came, he continued to grow. Well, I want us to have just a quick moment of discussion here, if anybody wanted to talk or discuss and uh, had any questions or whatever from the message, the last two messages um, before we close here. But let me pray, and then we'll, if the Lord puts something on your heart, we'll have a, a moment of sharing here. Father, we are so grateful for your word, thankful for this, just so transparent episode with John the Baptist and Jesus. And Lord, we know that John, uh, he never saw the resurrection. He never had all of his questions answered, I'm sure. But what you gave to him satisfied his questions and his doubts. Lord, we pray that we would take this seriously. And my prayer is for folks today who might be struggling with doubt, Lord. 
that they would look and hear about the things that were discussed, about the personal transformation where people meet Christ and they're changed forever, or these incredible evidences for the faith, or how Scripture, when it's lived out, it changes lives. And Lord, may we as a church come alongside those who are struggling and have mercy, as Jude 22 calls us to do. That Lord, you would help each one of us to be strong and growing in our faith, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.